we are in the book of Jonah, and we are uh, starting in chapter 2 today. So let me catch you up if you haven't been here the last couple weeks. Although most of you are probably familiar with the book of Jonah, because Jonah actually is one of the three or four most well-known stories in the Old Testament, or accounts in the Old Testament. Probably up there with them um, is Abraham and Isaac, where you know Isaac is the son of Abraham, and Abraham's going to kill him because God said so, and it's kind of an odd story to begin with, but that's one of the well-known stories. Another one is um, Moses. Moses, who uh, you know, led the nation out of you know, Egypt and you know, the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea and the plagues and all that kind of stuff. Many of us know about Moses. Many of us know um, about Noah, who interestingly, I oftentimes when I talk about Jonah, get Jonah and Noah confused. So if I've said that at all this series or if I say that today, if I say, you know, and Noah said and Noah said, just you know, cross that out and put in Jonah. Because they both have very similar names and they both had to do with lots of water and some stuff that happens in some ships. So um, Jonah or Noah, let's see. Got me there. Noah, um, who was around and the earth came, you know, flooded basically, and you know, he built a ship, and everybody said, Why are you building a ship? And then the animals come two by two. And it's funny how we interpret things through back like a, a, a third grade theology when there's you know real world implications. It's like, so how did the how did the animals come two by two? I look at it and say, So wait, you're worried about animals coming two by two and God annihilated the earth. Let's talk about your priorities for a second, okay? So we are in the book of Jonah, which is one of the more well-known stories in the Bible. And specifically what we've been through so far in the book of Jonah is where Jonah has received a call from God, and the call from God was to go to this place called Nineveh. Now, as God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, there's a cultural dynamic that if you're not familiar with the Bible, that makes it very difficult to understand why Jonah, as you probably know, ran from the call of God. And this was simply this. Nineveh was the warring nation against the nation of Israel. Nineveh was the city that was the capital or was becoming the capital of the place that was known for its extraordinarily inhumane tactics that they used in warfare and just dealing with people. They were as barbaric as a society as you could get in their day. And they were the world superpower. And Nineveh was the center or was the central city in this world superpower that was there enemies or was the most threatening uh, country to the existence of the nation of Israel. So this is basically like God saying, okay, pick your most threatening enemy. Your most threatening, and not just they're threatening because they could, you know, if they decided to get in conflict and we decided to get in conflict. No, just extraordinary hatred, incredible, you know, barbaric tactics. I mean, they're just gruesome in how they dealt with people. And God says, I want you to go to them, which meant either one of two things. You're going to not be successful and you're going to be killed. Or you're going to be successful and the people that you hate are going to be more empowered to potentially kill your country. So Jonah did what many of us would probably do. In fact, what we're going to find out in chapter 4 in a few weeks from now is the reason Jonah ran is because Jonah basically didn't feel like these people were worthy of the mercy of God. He basically says, you know, God, I know that you're a merciful God. God, I know that you're slow to anger. I know that you're quick to love and to forgive. And Jonah didn't feel like the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were worthy of the love the forgiveness and the mercy of God. Essentially, 
Because it was a different ethnicity, it was a different people group than what Jonah was and who Jonah was. Jonah had a sin of an ethnocentric view. Jonah had a sin basically in common terms as we would come to understand as racism. That Jonah thought my culture, my group, my people, my country, my ethnicity is better than yours. And you aren't deserving. And honestly for the, for the Assyrians and for the people of Nineveh, it was reasonable. Because they were a pretty gruesome group. And so Jonah ran from the call of God in chapter 1. As he ran from the call of God, he got on this ship at this place called Joppa. As he was going to this place called Tarshish. And as he jumped on this ship, the ship you know, sailed off to sea. It sailed off to go to Tarshish. And this huge storm came about, as most of you know. And as the storm comes and it rages and they decide, okay, something's going on. Everybody wakes up and everybody starts praying to their own God. It doesn't account Jonah for praying to his own God. And then they say, okay, we're going to cast lots to decide who's responsible for this where the lot falls on Jonah as it so happens. Jonah says, you're right. It is my fault. Tells him the whole story. As he tells him the whole story, they say, so what should we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. And they say, that sounds crazy. We're going to row harder. You know, can you imagine that? You're in the middle of, like, the ocean, and all of a sudden, like, one of your friends comes to you and like, dude, you know, there's this, there's this storm that's just raging crazy, and the, the, the ship is about to fall apart, and you're trying to row and row and row and get out of it. And they say, you know, what's going on? What's going on? And you say, I know, what, I know the problem. I got hammered last night, and I ran from God. So throw me into the sea and kill me. You'd be like... All right, first, does anybody have a straight jacket to put on this guy? Because that's just a little bit crazy. But nonetheless, that was, in fact, what Jonah what, knew what they were supposed to do to him because God had a plan and God was moving and God was working. So they tried to row harder. They ended up throwing Jonah into the sea. As soon as Jonah, Jonah goes, not really, not really as soon as, but Jonah, as he gets thrown into the sea, um, he gets swallowed at the end of chapter 1 by a big fish. Now, pause. We call that a whale. We don't know, really know what it is. For somehow or for some reason, Jonah ends up being swallowed, which actually is pretty interesting because if it specified what kind of fish it was, Jonah probably didn't know because Jonah probably couldn't see because Jonah was getting swallowed by a fish. It's kind of like you get swallowed by a fish. What kind of fish was it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to define a fish by its insides. I just know I was in this big stinking fish. Now, chapter 2, verse 1 is where we're going to pick up as Jonah has this whole thing. So Jonah prayed, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying. Now, the way this starts out, this is, this is, this is written basically in past tense. So Jonah isn't in the belly of the fish, you know, documenting what exactly I prayed. This is, this is as he's looking back and he's saying, okay, as I was in the belly of the fish, this is what I prayed. This is my remembrance of the prayer that I prayed while I was in the belly. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you, verse 3, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Now, this is fascinating. Because what Jonah's doing, again, Jonah's not in the moment. Jonah's looking back at the moment. And Jonah sees the circumstance and the situation he was in. Now, Jonah, granted, was fully responsible for what he was going through. This was a storm that happened because of the disobedience of Jonah. We go through lots of storms in life. Let's just be honest about that. We all go through storms in life. We go through storms of losing jobs. We go through storms of sicknesses and illnesses. We go through storms of tragedy. And from time to time, we go through storms. And the reason we go through that storm 
isn't because of an outside, uncontrollable force. It's directly in response to our disobedience. Yet, Jonah, as he starts to launch into this prayer, says, God, you threw me. You saw me. Now, for those of us who are a little bit more analytical, we would look at this and say, well, Jonah, really, you were responsible, and God didn't throw you. The sailors threw you. And here's what Jonah's purpose was. God, you had a plan. God, in my rebellion, you had a plan. And it was not that you wanted me to be rebellion, but you worked my rebellion to help me come to the realization of something. And so, God, I realize, it's almost like Jonah saying, I realize in hindsight that God was working in my rebellion. Let me tell you why that's so important. Because for some of us, perhaps we're in rebellion right now, or we're in a storm that was caused by our rebellion. What's fascinating again about this part of Jonah is that Jonah is looking at this from the perspective now that he is no longer in rebellion. He is living in the consequence of our rebellion. Because for many of us, as we go through life, we get to a point of repentance, we get to a point of following God, and we're still facing consequences from our former life of rebellion. Just because we repent doesn't mean we don't still face the consequences of the storm from that rebellion, which is where Jonah is. But he looks at it and says, there is a purpose in this. There is something that God is trying to teach me, or was trying to teach me in this rebellion. And so we're going to talk about this morning, is what is God trying to teach in the storm? What is God trying to teach Jonah in the storm? And what is God trying to teach all of us when you go through storms, when I go through storms, especially storms that are directly in response to our rebellion to God? Because if we're being honest, sometimes we can go through things, we can go through storms, and they almost feel purposeless. They almost feel like God just had a bad day, forgot to drink a cup of coffee, and got mad at us, threw a lightning bolt down, and all of a sudden our life just unraveled in front of us. But God has a purpose in this. And Jonah realizes that. So he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, your billows, passed over me. And then I said, I am driven from your sight now. If you weren't here week one, this statement has incredible power. Because in in, in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah's purpose in fleeing to go to Joppa, to go to Tarshish, wasn't simply to say, God, I I just don't think I'm going to do what you called me to do. Because if Jonah just didn't want to do what God called him to do, he would just stay there. You ever think about that? Like, he didn't have to run. That's like for us, like God, you know, perhaps you're in here and you're a Christian and you know that God's calling you to um, in some way, you know, actively love your neighbor. He's perhaps calling you in some way to share your faith, to minister to someone around you, to talk to somebody around you. And you're sitting there saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You don't just, all of a sudden God's telling you to go to the person in the cubicle next to you and talk to them about something that's going on in their life. And you decide, know what? No way. I'm going to Chick-fil-A today. You know? You just kind of decide not to do anything. But here's what Jonah decided to do. Here's why he decided to do that. Because his purpose in running to Tarshish was simple. He was trying to avoid the presence of God. And at this point, he felt like he had gotten there, unfortunately. He decided to turn around. All of a sudden, he's sinking down, which is a little bit different than somehow sometimes some of us understand this story. Because when we understand this story, sometimes we think that Jonah just jumped out. And all of a sudden, like... 
as Jonah, you know, got thrown from the ship, um, God basically did a uh, Steph Curry and just like, you know, threw him in the mouth of the fish, nothing but, you know, fish guts and net, and they didn't even hit rim as he went into this little fish, you know. But no, Jonah goes into this thing, goes into this, this thing, this ocean, starts sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. He thinks he's about to die. All of a sudden, this fish comes up and swallows him, and Jonah feels like at first, when he's going down, that he has fully escaped. Or unfortunately at this point, because he knows he wants back in, he feels like he has fully gone away from the presence of God. For some of us in our rebellion, for some of us as we have walked away from God, as we have, has, have actively been disobedient to God, can feel like perhaps we've outrun the presence of God. That perhaps I've gone too far. I've sinned too much. If God knew and God does know what I have done, there's no way that God could love and accept and forgive me. But here's Jonah's realization in the next verse. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Because of my rebellion, I am driven away from your sight. Yet... Now, he's going to say this yet part twice. He's going to talk about the temple twice. And those are very, very important things that we're going to come around. Yet, I shall look again, or I shall again look upon your holy temple. In other words, God, I am sinful, yet I am still looking at your temple. I am still looking at your holiness. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots at the root of the mountains. I went down to the lands whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He says, yet I was going down, yet you decided to give something to me that I was not deserving of. He continues on, he says this. When my life was fanning away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your temple. Now, we're going to take a bunch of stuff and put it all together here all at the same time. So, get ready, hold on tight. If you brought your thinking cap this morning, good, because you're going to need it. Okay, so here's what happens. So Jonah's sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. All of a sudden now he's in the, he's in the belly of the whale or the belly of the big fish or the belly of the whatever. And by the way, that would just be interesting if it wasn't like a big whale. We think like big whale, like spacious room. Like what if Jonah's just like claustrophobic in this little fish, right? And then he's just there for three days like that that I would know it suck so um it would kind of it would not be fun either way but let's just say you know that would be the worst of the two options so Jonah who's in this goes down goes down goes down all of a sudden everything's closing around him yet he looks at the temple of God twice now here's why that's significant and they all you know we look at this and we think okay that's just bible language you know what he means by that is yet I looked at you God looked at the presence of God but he says specifically yet I looked at the temple where you were. Now, we miss this because we're not, you know, super savvy a lot of times in the Old Testament. But the temple, specifically, was the place in the Old Testament that held the presence of God. The temple of the, in the Old Testament was the place, specifically, there were a number of different, you know, kind of corridors in the temple. But at the very heart of the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was so holy, as you can guess because it's named holy twice, it was so holy that this was the place that if you or I could not go, the only person that could go there was the high priest. And at the center of the Holy of Holies, or the central point um, of focus of the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant. 
And one of the things that was held in the ark was the Ten Commandments or the law, as we talk about it in the Old Testament, of God. Now, the law typified what we are to do if we are to be perfect. The law typified, if you are going to earn your way, and if I am going to earn my way into God's good graces, this is what you have to do, and this is what I have to do. We have to be perfect in the law. And the unfortunate thing is none of us are perfect. We all fall short. And so when Jonah would think about the temple, he would think about two things. One, he would think about the Ark of the Covenant, and he would think about the law. And at the same time, covering the Ark was this thing called the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was essentially a gold lid that had a couple of really incredible statues that stood on top of this gold lid. And on this mercy seat, what would happen is there would be something that would be done um, at least once a year. And they would take an animal, they'd take a sheep specifically, and they would make a sacrifice called an atonement. The mercy seat actually means the propitiation That's a really churchy word for those of us who are in here this morning. We're going to Bible geek out for a second, okay? So propitiation, that word propitiation means the wrath I deserve paid by someone else. The wrath I deserve paid by someone else. The wrath I deserve paid by someone else. And what that understood was is that from time to time, the nation of Israel would send the the high priest in to go make this sacrifice that they would sprinkle this blood as a sacrifice to say, this lamb, this blood is going to be sprinkled on the mercy seat because none of us can fulfill the law and so we need a propitiation we need someone to pay the consequence that our we need someone to pay the judgment we need someone to pay the wrath that we in ourselves couldn't pay now bible nerd kind of into that closed here's what that means that when jonah looked at the temple what he saw was both the wrath of god and the forgiveness of god when jonah looked at the temple What he saw was both the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the impossibility of living up to the the standard of perfection. And he saw forgiveness in the mercy seat. Which means that Jonah's understanding as he looked to there, as he was thinking and considering and contemplating his rebellion, was the thought process that I am rebellious, I am imperfect, and in light of my imperfection, there is grace and forgiveness and mercy. As there is a substitute propitiating my sin, taking the wrath that I should have deserved. In other words, this is fascinating. The entire reason... God had Jonah on this course was for a deeper understanding of the gospel. The entire reason that God had Jonah on this course was that Jonah would have a deeper understanding that I am sinful. Jonah would have a deeper understanding of the awareness that he, in and of himself, is impossible to live a life that fully pleases God, that fully lives to perfection. And so as Jonah looks at the temple, Jonah sees both the wrath of God that he should have gotten, and he sees the mercy of God because of the propitiation for sin that happens as an atoning sacrifice on the mercy seat. And as we would come to find out, that entire symbol was simply a symbol to prepare the way 
for the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice, which was the ultimate propitiation for all of our sins, which was Jesus on the cross. That because of our innate sinful nature, God sent his son, not a goat, not a lamb, but the lamb of God, the son of God, God himself, to die. To appease the wrath of God that our rebellion should have faced. And in light of that, forgiveness, grace, mercy. You see, it's unmerited grace. We didn't deserve it, and he gave it anyways. The grace of God is so interesting. Because here's basically the doctrine of grace. No one lives a life that they don't need grace, and no one has ever lived a life that they've outrun grace. Everyone is in need of it, and no one's too far for it. Everyone's in need of it, and no one's too far for it. Now, Here's what I love about what happens in the book of Jonah and why this is so extraordinarily important. Because the very next verse, Jonah makes a statement that seems a little bit disconnected from that thought process. But for all of us, especially if you're in here and you're a Christian, because if you're in here and you're a Christian, I, I kind of know the thought process. It's like, all right, man, so what you're telling me basically, Ben, this is, this is wonderful. I'm glad you're excited about this. But so basically, this is like Evangelism Sunday. This is for the person who comes in here. They don't really know Jesus. This is how the gospel works. This is the dynamic between us and God, sinful, you know, whatever, forgiven. I get it. I was not, you know, introduced to church yesterday, and I've been here for a long time. So this is what Jonah says next that, that kind of blows the lid off of that thought process. He says, so those, verse 8, who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, those who pay attention, those who worship idols, those who don't understand this, those who go after things besides God forsake the the love or the hope, he says, of steadfast love. Now, basically what Jonah is saying in this is, hey, when we go after idols, we forsake that love. When we go after things that are other than God, we forsake that love. When we go after things, whether it's money, whether it's comfort, whether we go after, whether it's family, whatever it is that we put in front of God is an idol, he would say. But the way to rid that idol and get the steadfast love is not deciding that I'm not going to have idols in my life anymore. The way to rid that, that idol in my life is a deeper realization of the gospel. Let me explain it this way. Jonah's sin of racism was not a sin where all of a sudden Jonah decides and goes to church one day, he all of a sudden feels convicted, and he all of a sudden says, you know what, I need to really decide to try to love my neighbor more. I need to really decide to try that no matter what you look like, no matter what country you're from, I'm going to love you. You know what Jonah did? He had a deeper awareness of the gospel. What that means is that for all of us, The sin that's in our life, the idolatry that's in our life, is not cured by us coming to a decision that we are no longer going to live in that sin. It's a deeper understanding and realization of the gospel. Because for many of us, especially if you've been raised in the church, 
When you think about the gospel, which basically is a, is a really short way of saying our undeserving, sinful nature that God came down, died for us, took the punishment, we now have a relationship with him, we now have a freedom, we now have a right standing with God, our heavenly father. When we think about that, we think that's the first step in the stairway of God, that we can't wait to get to the rest of the stuff. That is not the first step. That is the entire stairway. Everything else is a realization of the depth, width, and implications of that already existing realization. It is either I understand that deeper, I understand that wider, I understand the breadth of it more, or I now understand the implications that it has in my life. You know what this means? The reason you're not more generous isn't because you need to decide to be more generous. It's because you don't fully understand the gospel and the implications in your life. The reason we're not more pure, the reason we're more arrogant than we ought to be, the reason we're more prideful than we ought to be, isn't because we need to all of a sudden decide to be less prideful and think of others more. It's because we're not fully aware that we are all sinful and there is nothing that makes me better than you because I am just as bad of a sinner as you are. No matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, no matter how much you make, no matter how much you act or how you act, how you're dressed, how educated you are or uneducated you are, we are the same sinful people. And Jesus displayed that. When he, being God, did not decide to lord it over us, but decided to go instead and take the very nature of us, of a human being, in fact, a servant, and to serve us. Our selfishness is not remedied through a decision to be less selfish. Our selfishness is remedied through an understanding of the gospel, of God's mercy, of God's love, of my sinfulness. Jonah's racism, Jonah's ethnocentric view. God didn't, God didn't go to Jonah and say, Jonah, let's have a little accountability session. We need to talk about how you view your people and your culture over the Assyrians and the Ninevites. He said, Jonah, no, you need to understand that you are no better than them. And they are just as deserving of, your, of my love and my grace as you are. And you have just too big of a, too high of a view of yourself and your own culture to understand and to realize that. We're not generous. Same reason. Because we see a God who gave everything for us. And the reason we're not more generous is because we don't realize that we in the same way are to mirror God who gave everything for us. And so we're to not live for ourselves, but to live to love and to serve other people. And see, here's the thing. Especially in Christian circles, we get caught up in this. We get caught up in, I see somebody in sin. And so I'm going to call them out. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to call them out. I'm going to have a conversation with them. And I'm going to say, hey, man, I've seen this in your life, or I've seen this in your life. I'm coming to you. I'm going in love. And so this is the thing I think I've seen you do, and this is the thing I think you need to stop doing. We're going to study this in the fall. In the book of Galatians, it's so fascinating. Paul opposes Peter, New Testament fellows, if you're not familiar with the Bible. Peter, I mean, rock of the church, mega, you know, he's the rock star, he is the guy, he is the rock, he is the, the kind of one of the central figures. And Paul, who came in much later in the game, opposes Peter because of how Peter was acting. And P- Paul didn't go to Peter and says, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. He goes to Peter and he says, Peter, you are not living in line 
Not with the morality, not with how we ought to act. I've seen some stuff in your life. I'm concerned. I need to talk to you. He says, you are not living in line with the gospel. In other words, it's not about morality. It's not about behavior. It's about a deeper and a more aware understanding of my sinfulness, of God's extraordinary and extravagant love. And whenever I look at my life, Whenever I look at idols, whenever I look at temptation, whenever I look at places that I have rebelled and I have erred, it is not simply for me to decide not to do that anymore. It's to me, for me to realize there is some way, shape, or form, an area of my life where I have not fully realized the implications of the gospel or believed in the truth of God's mercy and love for me in light of my sinfulness. That has implications into everything. It is not the first step. It is the entire stinking staircase. And the longer you're a Christian, the farther you get into the realization of that. So he ends it by saying this. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, in other words, I, as I have realized that, this is my response now. With the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you What I have vowed I will pay for salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, God, I realized, I realized that I had this sin in my life. I realized that I thought I was better than other people. I thought that I was better than the Ninevites. I thought that they weren't deserving of the Ninevites. But I've realized that was just an idol in my life. And I came to that realization not because someone talked to me or someone called me out or someone said, hey, you really ought to modify your behavior in that sense. I came to the realization that I wasn't aware of the depth of my sinfulness. And in the depth of my sinfulness, I had pride and I had arrogance, and I had an ethnocentric view, and the cure to that was to realize that God, in fact, so deeply loves me and gives me mercy in in light of my sinfulness, in light of my extraordinary selfishness. And God, in response to that, I'm going to live for you. In In response to that, I am going to willingly sacrifice for you. In light of that, he says, What I have vowed, I will pay. What I have said, God, I'm going to do it, not because I have to, because I'm going to willingly sacrifice to you, because I have come to the realization that salvation belongs to the Lord, that my salvation belongs to the Lord, that your salvation belongs to the Lord, that our salvation belongs to the Lord, and there is nothing worth my sacrifice more than that. Let me tell you, this is how you can tell Someone who authentically and really understands the gospel. Someone who really understands and has met Jesus. Is that there is a deep awareness of our sinfulness. There is a deep understanding of the sacrifice of the wrath of God that has been paid by someone else. And his name is Jesus. And that drives in us. A depth of love, a depth of appreciation, that it manifests itself in tons of different ways, in change in our life. So Jonah declares, God, I thought I was better than the Ninevites, but I'm going to willfully sacrifice to you because salvation belongs to the Lord. And God, you were using this whole situation to bring me to a deeper understanding that I was unaware of my need 
I was unaware of the necessity of the need for a deeper understanding and awareness of your mercy and your grace. And as he says that, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. (laughs) I just want to say, I love how this ends. Because sometimes when we come to that realization, when you get to that point, you think, okay, and so now it's all just going to be nice and clean and healthy and helpful. And it's like, all right, so let me tell you how I'm going to get it. Like the fish isn't just going to like politely spit you out and it gives you like a manicure and it gives you, you know, a nice little hairdo and it cleans you up. And it's okay. So here's you on the dry land. Like the fish throws him up. Which means that even when we come to that realization, it's not necessarily clean. But it is with conviction. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Let me just kind of end by saying this. This really hits us in two camps this morning. For some of us, it's a understanding. It's a moving towards the idea of God and the idea of Jesus. And perhaps for you, it's the realization that there is a God who is holy and pure and blameless And we fall just infinitely short of his perfection. And you see the law, and perhaps for the longest time, you've seen the law of God. And felt so distanced, so out of the presence of God, because of the distance that your sin and my sin, and that's not an indictment, that is a human condition. And today... You need to experience the mercy seat of God, the atonement of God, the propitiation of God. That the wrath, the judgment, the distance that we should have faced was faced for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And you are absolutely in need of grace, but you are by no means too far from grace. And so for you perhaps this morning, it's that for the first time ever, or perhaps for the first time in a long time, you leave that life of rebellion, cling to Jesus, who died as the sacrifice so that we could receive the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And you now have a relationship with him as the sacrifice that was made for you. You simply place your faith, your hope, and your trust in that sacrifice. Maybe for you, the second camp is you're here and you're a Christian. You're struggling with some stuff as we all do. You have sin in your life as we all do. And perhaps for you, your response to that sin has been to try to white-knuckle your will, take out that sin. Perhaps for you, the realization this morning is that the reason that that sin exists is because you haven't fully let the truth of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the gospel of God penetrate that area of your life. You are holding on to an idol because God has not yet infiltrated that area with the truth and the reality of our sinfulness and his overwhelming love and grace and mercy 
in light of that. So, I don't know where you are. Well, I know where you are. I don't know who you are, and I don't know where you are in life. But here's my prayer. That with all of that, God would give you the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. Let's pray together.